I'm so thankful for uh, this church family. I shared with you, thank you for the, the compassion and the sympathy that you sent in cards or in texts or Facebook, whatever. Uh, that meant so much to Laurel and me. And I was uh, thinking as well, on Thursday night, uh, we gathered together for the Thursday night men's group. And uh, I read the eulogy that I wrote for my brother. And it was just good to have real people who could really hear it, who really know me. I couldn't have done that in a public service. I couldn't have done that at the funeral itself. Uh, but those guys put up with it and let me read it. And uh, those kind of that authenticity, that realness is so essential to healthy Christian living. Um, it's just, you can't, you can't uh, live well as a Christian without that. That's why Kerman's Alliance, our kind of our slogan is real God, real life, real people. And I'm thankful for Drew sharing this morning. I'd like to ask you, uh, if you would, to open your Bibles. Uh, I'm going to have most of this on the screen. If you don't want to open your Bibles, uh, you will be covered. There's a YouVersion Bible app event for this. Uh, we're going to begin, though, kind of our key verses, our 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. That's where we're going to be today. So in 2007, that's what, 13, 14 years ago, uh, is my math right? Yeah. A guy wrote a book um, called The Year of Living Biblically. One Man's Humble Quest to Follow the Bible as Literally as Possible. Has anyone read that? Let me see. Anybody? Okay, it was a bestseller. It was a pretty popular book in the time. He wasn't a Christian. He didn't profess any faith at all. But he, uh, here, here's, uh, here's what he did. He read the Bible, all of it, in a various number of translations. And then he compiled from that reading all the commandments he could find. You know, thou shalt not murder, there's one, you know. Thou shalt stone the adulterer, there's another. Thou shalt not trim the sides, the corners of your beards, there's your beard, there's a, another. And he, he wrote them down, and then for 365 days, he set out to live all 700 of those commandments, okay? He had quite the beard when he was done. Amazon summarizes the book this way. Avoiding shellfish was easy. The stoner the stoning of adulterers proved more difficult and potentially controversial. Was it enough to walk up to an adulterer and gently touch them with a stone? Even that could be grounds for accusations of assault, especially with female adulterers in Manhattan. So what's a good Bible reading boy to do? <laughs> now, he, he made a video talk. I didn't read the book, but he made a video about it and talked about it. I want to share with you how he summarizes some of the lessons that he learned, lessons learned from living the Bible literally for 365 days. And I agree with some of these. Some of these are really good lessons, and I thoroughly disagree with some others. Listen as I read them. Lesson number one, thou shalt not take the Bible literally, he says. He says you can't, in our society, stone someone who has committed adultery. Now, I honestly don't think this was a lesson for this gentleman, because he suggests that he actually started this quest because he wanted to prove you can't take the Bible literally. 45 to 55% of Americans say, I take the Bible literally. He said, really? Let me try that. And then he did for a year and wrote the book. So he says, my lesson is you can't take the Bible literally, but I don't think that was a lesson. I think that was a preposition that he had. Number two, thou shalt give thanks. He said, I found it amazingly beneficial to my outlook on the day when I got to work and said, thanks for getting me here safely. Giving thanks, he said, was helpful to me. Here's the third lesson. Thou shalt have reverence. 
He said, I started my year out as an agnostic. An agnostic is someone who isn't sure if there's a God or there isn't a God. He said, I ended my year, and you might call me a reverent agnostic, because he learned that there is something beautiful and something important about the sacred and sacredness. And he noted that, like, even when you treat the Sabbath as sacred, you're glad that you did. Next lesson. Thou shalt not stereotype. He said he was amazed as he got to interacting with Christians and Jewish people as well and talking to them about their their faith. He said, you can't stereotype them and say they're all the same. For example, there are evangelical Christians who politically are far on the right and politically there are some who are far on the left. You can't make those stereotypes, he said. Two more lessons. Thou Thou shalt not, let me say it again, thou shalt not disregard the irrational. Now, a lot of people who are irreligious say, Religion isn't rational, so I'm writing it off. But he said this, he said, even irreligious people do that which is irrational religiously. He gave this example. What rationality is there to lighting candles on fire on top of a pastry, a cake, and then blowing them out and doing that at regularly scheduled intervals? But we do it. And he said, an alien, how would an alien see, and and this is my illustration, he had a different one, how would an alien see that behavior as any differently than the first Sunday of every month taking the bread and taking the cup? Hmm. He says, thou shalt not disregard the irrational because he felt that rituals by nature are irrational, but that doesn't mean we should dismiss them. Here's the final lesson that he shares. Thou shalt pick and choose. When you're reading the Bible, pick the things you agree with, choose them, and disregard what you don't agree with. That's one of the ones I don't buy into, right? (laughs) He decided you just can't follow everything in the Bible. Now, as I said, his lessons, some were good, some were not so good, but his quest really speaks to us of the importance of the Bible. Because you and I, as Christians, see the Bible as keystone in our Christian faith. We memorize the Bible. I probably could write down over 100 Bible verses pretty close to word for word if I had the ambition to do such a thing. Every Sunday morning, I preach from the Bible. You may say that looks a lot like a tablet. It is. It's the stone tablet that Moses brought down from Mount... No. But the Bible's right here. That's where I read it from. And, and we put it on the screen for you. And many of you read your Bible every day. Many of you are going, read it through in a year. Others of you are going through Dr. Soper's Mission 119 and 91 weeks, you're going to go the whole way through the Bible. Our small groups read the Bible. In fact, uh, in, in one group early on, one of the younger guys said, this is a new group. And what I would really like to happen is that we only read the Bible. I love reading. I'm a reader myself. We've read some really good books on Saturday mornings but I really want us to read the Bible. That's the cry of my heart. Huh, why? Why is it that Christians regard the Bible as a keystone to their Christian faith? There are a number of reasons. One is that the Bible actually lays the foundation for Christian faith and practice. The Christian and Missionary Alliance Statement of Faith says, the Old Testament, the Old and New Testaments, inerrant as originally given, were verbally inspired by God and are a complete revelation of his will for the salvation of men. They constitute the divine and only rule for Christian faith and practice. 
the only rule for Christian faith and practice, we say, is the scripture. So the Bible speaks to us about faith, about what we believe. What do you believe about life, the universe, and everything? How do you evaluate decisions that you need to make? What metric do you use? Is there such a thing as right and wrong? And how do you know if this is right or if that is wrong? And do you have free will or are you a robot? What does the Bible say about that? Does fatalism rule the day? Can, can, can I ever find happiness? Should I even bother to try? Keep in mind the words of A.W. Tozer, who in his classic work, Knowledge of the Holy, opened up with a sentence like this. What comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So what comes to your mind when you think about God? And where do you get that information? Is God a person with intellect and with will and with emotion? Or is he an impersonal force? And you hear people say, boy, the universe was really good to me this week. You know? Is that right? Is it just an impersonal force? Does God speak? Has he spoken? Or is he silent? Do you understand, is God evil or is God good? And how do you know? Maybe he's a blend, the yin and the yang. Maybe he's perfect balance of good and bad. Am I accountable to him? Or can I just do as I please? Where do you get your answers to those questions? Really? (laughs) Where do you get your answers to those questions? Christians get their answers to those questions from the Bible. This apostle Paul is writing to a young pastor and he says to him, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The Bible, it's a keystone to our Christian faith. But it's not just a keystone of faith in regard to what we should think, like philosophy, is God good or is he bad, does he speak? You know, those are really important questions. But the Bible doesn't just speak to the question of faith, it speaks to the question of faith and practice. And practicing our faith isn't just about having communion on the first Sunday of every month. Practicing our faith doesn't just apply to how we do church. For believers, practicing our faith amounts to how do you live? And the Bible instructs us on things like relationships, on honesty, on beauty, on purity, on mercy, on desire, on integrity, on conversation, on grace, on fairness. The Bible lays a foundation for faith and practice. It's a keystone to our faith. Now, in a moment, we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 9, verses 27 and 28. You can turn there if you like. I'll probably put it on the screen if it all fits. I can't remember how much of it I got on the screen. The Bible is a keystone of Christian faith because it is a foundation for faith and practice and because it reveals the outcome of our life. The Bible teaches us that there is a heaven to gain and a hell to shun. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 says, Just as people are destined to die once and after that face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to all those who are waiting for him. So that tells me our lives have meaning that lasts into eternity. That tells me that when I'm at a funeral service, and there's a body there in the casket, that that is not the end for that individual. It is a beginning, a transitional time for that individual. 
That gives me hope beyond the grave, hope of eternal life. It gives me purpose to live a certain way in this life. And how would I know that without the Bible? Where would I get that idea without Scripture? The Bible reveals the outcome of our lives. It's a keystone of Christian faith because it rests our faith on something other than mere human thinking and human trends. Think of the trends. Dr. Spade was here in the early service. Her degree is in psychology. And she laughed as I was presenting this and nodded. She was pretty enthusiastic on this point. Think of the trends that have come and gone over the past few decades in something like the field of psychology or psychoanalysis. The title of this article kind of sums it up well. Do you see that? Why Freud still matters when he was wrong about almost everything. Wow. So that kind of tells me if you were going to a church and your pastor over the past 40 years has been preaching psychoanalytical thought to you and Freudianism to you, you probably are going to need to go into therapy to get that corrected because he was wrong about everything, right? That was a joke. I wish you could see me smiling under this mask. (laughs) Yeah. How about Thomas Harris? Thomas Harris's name was a household word 50 years ago. He wrote a book called I'm Okay, You're Okay, Transactional Analysis, a big school of, of psychology. My guess is that the under 40s have never heard of it. Never heard of him. In fact, when I say Thomas Harris, some of you are like, Thomas Harris? He wrote Silence of the Lambs. Wrong book. <laughs> Wrong book, okay? Transactional analysis was a trend. And it came and it went. Psychoanalytical method, Freudian, psycho came, and it seems that it's going or gone, right? What, what, about, uh, what about Dr. Phil? Is he still popular? I don't know. I, you know, one of the only things I like about the pandemic is that I can't go into the hospital in the daytime and sit in a waiting room. I, I do that with people from time to time. Daytime television will be the death of me, you know? Yeah, if you weren't sick when you went in, that'll make you sick. That's why hospitals show it, right? I'm sorry, if you like daytime television, I need to apologize. I'm just expressing my opinions. Let me get back to what I was talking about. Is Dr. Phil still popular? I don't even know if he's still on, is he? I can tell you this, he won't be. He won't be. That he will go the way of Phil Donahue and Sally Jesse Raphael. And some of you are like, who are they? Yeah, yeah, that's who they are. Because that which human beings compose tends to decompose. Trends come and go. But the Bible, it isn't trendy. It never was trendy. And because it provides for us something lasting and enduring, it remains a keystone of Christian faith. Now, someone may ask, okay, why do you trust Scripture really? I mean, I know we think it's important. That's what your whole first point was. But why? Why do you trust the Bible, Pastor Steve? Now, I'm not going to go into the kind of detail that some people might do, trying to prove to you that the Bible is the word of God beyond a shadow of doubt. I'm just going to talk about why we trust Scripture. I'm just going to answer the question. I'm going to tell you why we revere it. And first, we trust Scripture because Jesus regarded the Old Testament as trustworthy. I mean, if you think about it, when he begins his ministry, he's filled with the Holy Spirit. He goes out into the desert for 40 days, and Satan, the devil, comes to tempt him. And every time Satan tempts him, he answers him with this phrase, it is written, it is written. It is written, and every time he's quoting scripture that he probably memorized when he was a little boy, he's quoting Deuteronomy to the devil, Rich Mullins would say. Yeah, Jesus revered scripture. He trusted it. When Jesus is interacting with the Pharisees, over and over again, you hear him say, have you not read? Have you not read? He's not talking about outdoor life. 
He's talking about, have you not read the scriptures? He trusted them. And in John 10.35, he makes this powerful statement. He says, the scripture cannot be broken. He quotes what they were regarding as a controversial passage of scripture. And he says, you can't dismiss this. It's the word of God. It can't be broken. We trust scripture because Jesus did. Another reason we trust scripture is because it's internally consistent. Now I'm going to give you a lot of information, so I'm going to slip in high gear. Everybody got it on? Here we go. Here we go. Ready? <laughs> it's pretty impressive that the Bible is internally consistent. And I say that because there are 66 books in the Bible. Those 66 books were written by about 40 different people. Those 40 different people, many of them never even saw one another. In fact, they lived over a period of between 1,500 and 2,000 years. And on top of that, they spoke three different languages. It's written in three different languages, and it's written on three different continents. And it covers hundreds of topics, and yet it agrees on things that really might be hard to agree on. It agrees on creation. Genesis 1.1, that's the first book of the Bible, the first chapter, the first verse. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. There it is, creation. Well, let's move ahead to the Gospels. Let's go into the Gospel of John. And in the first chapter of the first verse of the Gospel of John, you read, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. And without him, nothing was made that has been made. You find Jesus speaking about this. And in Matthew 19.4, in Matthew 19.4, Jesus says, haven't you read that at the beginning, the Creator made them, male and female? 66 books, 40 different authors, up to 2,000 years separating, one creation story. How about the flood? That's something you would think, I don't know if there's a flood, a worldwide flood, what about that? Well, Genesis 7, you can find it in verse 18. It says, the waters rose and increased greatly on the earth and the ark floated on the surface of the water. And then you find Jesus talking, how many millennia later? How many millennia later? And he says, and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. And then Jesus dies. He's risen from the dead. He ascends to the Father. And Peter speaks about the flood. Peter says, by these waters also the world at that time was deluged and destroyed. 66 books, 40-some authors, and yet they all agree. Same story. They agree on something that's really important, that Christ is risen. (laughs) The songbook of the Bible is the book of Psalms. And in chapter 16, in verse 10, you read these words. Because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. If you're not abandoned to the realm of the dead, then you must come back from it. Because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful one or holy one see decay. That was written like a thousand years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And then Jesus speaks himself in Mark chapter 8, he says in verse 31, the scripture says, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and teachers of the law, and he must be killed, and after three days, rise again. And then after Jesus ascends into heaven, the early church is working with this issue of the resurrection, and evidently some people say there is no resurrection. The apostle Paul in the book of 1 Corinthians writes a whole chapter about it. We call it the resurrection chapter of the Bible, And he agrees with what was said a thousand years earlier in Psalm 16 that Christ was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day according to the scriptures. These are just some examples of the internal consistency of the Bible. It makes me know it's trustworthy. 
Let me give you a third reason that we trust the Bible, because it's filled with fulfilled prophecies. Genesis 18, God is speaking to Abraham. He says, you're going to have a child. (laughs) A year from now, you will have a child. And Sarah is listening inside the tent. She laughs out loud. I don't blame her. She's 90 years old when that child is born, right? I'd have laughed out loud too, right? Yeah. God said it. It was a prophecy. came to be. It happened. Isaiah 45 speaks of a king who's going to be coming, and his name is Cyrus. Scholars tell us that Isaiah 45 was written 100 years before Cyrus was made king. And Cyrus was not made king when he was 120 years old, so these words were written before he was even born. 100 years before he became king, the Bible said he's going to be king. Let me ask you something. What year is it? Help me out, somebody. It's an easy question. Answer the easy questions. What year is it? Now. 2021? Okay, good. Whoa! Turn the heat down. They're falling asleep in here. It's 2021. So add 100 to that. It's going to be 2121. Who will be president of the United States? Can you give me his name? How about just give me an initial? That's crazy talk, isn't it? But the Bible does that. It's amazing. Jesus, he predicted the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. He says in Matthew 24 too, he says, you see these things, truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. So I was privileged to go to Jerusalem twice. The second time I went there, they took us down underneath Temple Mount where they did some excavating and they let us see the foundation stones, which would have been similar in size to the stones that the temple was built with. Okay, you got that? Here's how big they are. If I walk over here, And I point to that wall, not to the piano, not to the little railing, but to the wall. That's how long one of those stones is. And it is taller than I am. And it is probably from the edge of the, it's probably that deep. Can you imagine how hard it was to put them in place? Can you imagine knocking them down and dispersing them so there's no memory of them? That's basically what happened 40 years after Jesus made that statement. Fulfilled prophecy. The Bible is simply full of it. But let me tell you a personal reason we we trust Scripture, and it is this, that the Bible has transforming power. I am not the same person that I was 30 years ago. Some of you are looking, you're saying, you're right, you're not, buddy. (laughs) And that's true. I'm not the same person that I was when this pandemic began. I got my 10 pounds, Dave, right? Yeah, but I'm not the same person, spiritually speaking, that I was 30 years ago. I'm not the same person emotionally. I'm not the same person morally and ethically that I was 30 years ago. I am a transformed version of that, transformed for the better, and the Bible was a keystone in seeing that come to be. In his video, Regarding his book, The Year of Living Biblically, the author said that the Bible actually changed him. He said that giving thanks made his day go better, made his life go better. He said, being reverent and regarding some things as holy, even though I didn't understand why they were holy, was helpful to me in a way that I have trouble explaining. He said that engaging in ritual, while seemingly irrational, actually brought value to his life. Isn't that interesting? I mean, think about that for a minute. He didn't become a believer. He's still an agnostic. He doesn't know if he should believe in God because he's not sure there is a God. And yet the word of God 
had transforming power in his life. We shouldn't be surprised because Hebrews chapter four, verse 12 says, the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. You can trust the Bible. Those are just some of the reasons we do. When you take this step of trusting the Bible, then you begin to think to yourself, so how do I honor God's word? What does honoring the Bible look like? And I would say to you, we don't honor the Bible by refraining from trimming the corners of our beards. If you think about it, under this mask, I have a goatee, which means the only part of my beard that I trim is the corners, right? We don't honor the Bible by abstaining from shellfish or being careful not to mix linen and fly. I don't even know what that means, right? It's just pretty simple. You read it. You study it. You work to understand what it says. So when I was dating a girl, before I was married, I knew a girl named Laurel Smith. Um, She and I dated. She's my wife now. When Laurel and I were dating, I was at the University of Pittsburgh in Pittsburgh studying engineering, and she was at Asbury College in Kentucky, 390 miles away. There was no internet. (laughs) The U.S. Post Office was our lifeline. There were no cell phones, no unlimited long distance. There was no such thing as that. I can remember we would set up a schedule for me to call and we would hope that no one was on the one payphone that was in her dormitory when I would call once a week, we tried to call. As we talked, we would sometimes, sometimes we would discuss the things we wrote in our letters because we mailed multiple letters to each other each week, multiple letters back and forth. Sometimes we would discuss those things. I can tell you this. There was never a time when a topic in one of those letters came up that one of us said to the other, oh man, I'm really sorry. I didn't get a chance to read that yet. It never happened. There was never a moment in the discussion of what was going on in that letter that one of us said, oh, I didn't, did you say that? I don't remember, I don't remember. Here's why. I can't speak for her, but I read those letters over and over and over and over. You guys that have social media, you're spoiled to death. I read them over and over because I loved the author. I wanted to hear her heart. That's the way it is with the Bible. To honor the Bible, to honor God, we read it. You want to hear what he has to say. You want to hear what his heart would say to you. You want to study it. Something I often hear and I agree with, and it blesses my heart when I hear it, but another part of me is like, yeah, but, and it, it could worry me, is this sentence. You can hear small groups. I've heard numerous small groups say this through the years. I don't care what we study. I just like being together. I don't care what we study. I just like being together. And I love that. I agree with that. But, but understand, the part of it that makes me worry a tiny little bit is that if we're studying a book on hunting elk in Colorado, we'd be missing it. We'd be missing it. We study the Bible because we love the author. We find it trustworthy and we want to honor it. It's a keystone of our Christian faith. There's a second way that we honor it and that is by prioritizing what it says. If you want to honor the word of God, then you make it and what it says a priority of what you've always been taught. Every now and then you hear someone say, 
well, I was always taught this. I know the Bible says that, but I was always taught. Let me tell you, if what I was always taught and the Bible disagree with one another, which one do you think is right? The Bible. The Bible. We prioritize what the Bible says over what seems practical. Well, I know that the Bible teaches that, but frankly, I just don't see that as being very practical. (laughs) Wow. When my daughter felt called to go overseas as a teenage girl to help people learn about Jesus, some good friends, some church people, some family people, with the best intentions I can imagine, suggested that she reconsider you know that that will be very costly. And in this world, it will be very dangerous. And it's just plain impractical, almost unnecessary. Consider the technology we have today. You could do radio ministry. You could do internet ministry. Why travel like that? You could do online Bible studies that are video focused, or you could have chat rooms where you could talk to people. You could do it virtually. You don't have to go over there And doing it these ways would be much more practical. But the Bible doesn't tell us to be practical. The Bible says, therefore go and make disciples of all people, of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. It might not be practical, but it's what we do because we prioritize what the Bible says over what seems practical. And third, we prioritize it over what feels good. What feels good is not always good. Let me give you some examples, not from any personal experience or anything. If you go to one of those breakfast bars that has the eggs and the sausage, the pancakes and the bacon, and you look at that and you think, I think I'll just have coffee and bacon. By the time you get to about your second plate of bacon, you're going to realize that that which felt good was not a good idea. That's my personal experience. (laughs) How about this? Sleeping in. That feels good, right? But your employer doesn't want you to do that. He wants you there on time. Skipping school, skipping classes. That feels good, right? No, (laughs) it does, but it's not a good decision. Using a measure of what feels good is generally a foolish thing to do. We prioritize the Bible over these things because it's a keystone of Christian faith. We honor the Bible as well when we live it. You know, in talking about, when I talk about living the Bible, I'm not talking about what the gentleman who wrote the book is talking about, living biblically. Even he would admit that he knew this was just foolish. In fact, the reason that he did it is kind of twofold. First, it's his style. He, he actually practices a kind of immersion of himself into something, and then he goes off and writes about it. For example, um, he, uh, he was writing an article about um, being completely honest and never, and never filtering what was on your mind. And he did that for 30 days. The title of the article was, I Think You're Fat. Yeah. <laughs> so that's his thing to kind of, I'm going to do something crazy, and then I'm going to write about it afterwards. So he would know that this is just kind of crazy. In fact, He'd probably admit this is kind of a gimmick to write a book that will be popular, and frankly, the gimmick worked well. When we talk about living the Bible, we're not talking about a gimmick. Here's what we're talking about. 
We're talking about seeing our utter inadequacy to do what God requires. That's living the Bible. We're talking about trusting that Jesus himself did that which is required. We're talking about asking him for forgiveness for our moral failures and trusting him for life. We're talking about following after him. That's the gospel. We're talking about being saved and living a regenerate life. Because that's what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that there's a difference between right and wrong and that you cannot possibly follow all of those commandments. You cannot be perfect. You need to be forgiven. And God provides that forgiveness in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you live biblically when you follow him. You can kind of see it's a, quote, by the spirit thing, not so much a by the book thing. (laughs) It's sort of a by the heart thing and not by the letter sort of thing. So when I was a kid, my family traveled a lot. I was really lucky. (laughs) I hadn't thought of this until recently, how lucky I was. My parents had three children, and then nine years later, after the last one was born, I came along. And I don't know if they felt lucky or not, but that was lucky for me because they were financially solvent and my older siblings were all doing their own thing. And so mom and dad and I, we went everywhere. We sang a song, I've been everywhere, man, I've been everywhere. Mom called us the Three Musketeers. We traveled, you know, out to Devil's Tower, Mount Rushmore, all those different kind of things. Everywhere that we traveled, we would always look for a church on Sunday morning. We didn't say, we're on vacation. We don't have to go to church. My family loved to go to church. My parents loved to go to church. And they, they even had, they called it the Alliance Prayer Manual. It was about this thick. It was a book of every Alliance ministry on the globe. And, and so they would take that with them. And they, we're, in, we're in where? South Dakota? Hey, there's three Alliance churches in this state. One of them's only four hours away. Let's go. You know? That was kind of the way I thought. Well, naturally, they couldn't always get to an Alliance church. They so went to a variety of different churches while we traveled. That was a good part of my growing up. And occasionally, I would hear my dad say these words as we drove away from the church. And he said it with kind of a blend of disappointment and utter disdain. He would say this, that guy didn't even open the Bible or refer to it this morning. Why would he say that? Because my dad knew what you and I know, that the Bible is a keystone to our Christian faith. I'm gonna pray that you and I would honor it as such. So if you're comfortable doing so, let's stand together and we'll pray. Let's bow our hearts together. Father in heaven, we are thankful for your word and how it is sharper than any two-edged sword. It really cuts to the heart of the matter. We are thankful for its transformative power that it can even transform a man who doesn't know for sure that you exist. How much more could it transform you us, rather, who are are seated here before you, God, standing before you. May we be men and women who give honor to your word. May we be men and women who trust your word, who use it as our rule of faith and practice, who memorize it, who hide it in our hearts so we might not sin against you. May it be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. This we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.